And now, coming to you live... Oh, I don't know. I thought that was okay. I thought that was pretty good. It's, it was sort of like we were interrupted by a tornado. <laughs> and now, coming to you... What was that? That was a, it was a taxi outside. <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a, I live in a city. There's a taxi. It's not a big deal. It's okay. You can go back to bed. Jeez. You and my cat. And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf and Jonathan Strahan on the Coot Street Podcast! And we're here, yeah, here, we, here we are in, in, back in the city, back in, back in the saddle, our two consecutive podcasts after our brief hiatus. Yes. And, and still no guests, but, but we're working on guests. We have, we have guests. People love um, us, Gary, don't they? Please tell us that you love us so we don't have to have guests. That sounded needy, yeah. didn't it? That sounded really needy. No, don't tell us that you love us at all. <laughs> can, can they tell us that they sort of like us and they sort of, you know, mano a mano kind of social kind of a way? No? Well, I, yeah, I suppose so. But, you know, they can also say bugger off. <laughs> which that's some sorry. of them do. Oh, I don't like that. That's not very kind. Maybe they could vote for us for the Hugo Awards, Gary. That'd be the nicest way to say they like us. That would be a nice way to say they like us. Absolutely. Does that sound needy? <laughs> no, it only sounds needy, Gary, when I say they should also nominate us for best professional for uh, non-professional for the World Fantasy Awards. <laughs> oh, I hadn't even thought about that. When do the nominations actually come out for the World Fantasy well, Awards? Well, the, the nominations don't close until the end of this month. Have you put in your ballot, Gary Gay Wolf? I don't think so, because I don't think I could find it on the website. Is it easy to find? Yes, it's easy to find. I even tweeted the, 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 the page location, Gary. What have you been doing? You've been asleep. I don't know. I've been asleep. I've been working. My semester ended. I've been grading papers, exams, theses, uh, dealing with students who are you know whose lives are ending now. And I haven't had time to think about things like that. So, uh, so I will get on it right away. I will get on the World Fantasy nomination. We should remind people to nominate... For the world fantasy, because what is it? Two items in every category of That's right. five. That's correct. Are public nominees. That's correct. Yes, and it, it, it's easy to find. You go to wfc2013.org, and then see, I've just gone there to see. And there is a, a, a navigation item for world fantasy awards, and there is an awards ballot tab. So you're right there. And uh, and in fact, I'll try to put a link in the on the show notes. And this is actually to be serious, people. We're not asking you to vote for us. Yes, we are. Um, but we just want you to be involved. This is a chance to be involved in one of the top three or four awards in the field. So and and the only one as I as I I'm pretty sure the only one which is both judged and voted on. That's correct. That's correct. So yes, nominate often, nominate early, but do be aware that uh, on the 31st of May or whatever it is, yeah, May 31st. It closes, so make sure you vote. You've nominated. Okay. For for anything that you think is worthy. I'm glad you reminded me of that, Jonathan. This sounds like a <laughs> 1950s radio commercial. I will certainly do my civic duty and vote immediately after this podcast. <laughs> I think I'm going to vote the recent series of John Norman reprints for best professional. I think that's worth giving some thought to, actually. <laughs> I am now giving it some thought. Well, John Norman, uh, there, there's a category of writer. Now, there's somebody, because I know people who knew John Norman. Our friend Charles knew John Norman. I forgot his name. I forget his real name. Yeah, he was a philosopher. Um, but aren't there a certain category of writers 
who you're really curious about watching without actually having to meet them? Oh, wow. I guess so. I hadn't really thought of it in those particular terms. Well, there are writers that you love and that you want to meet, and then there are writers that you really are askance about, and you kind of want to see them in the way you want to see, I don't know. A bug under glass. Reptiles in the zoo or or Australian jumping cockroaches or whatever they have over it. Um, So, yeah, this is morbid curiosity. I think that John Norman might be one of the few that falls into that category for me, Gary. I'm not immediately (laughs) thinking of another one. You know, um, yeah, Scott Card maybe. Well, yeah, and Scott Card I have met, and he's um, he's, – when I met him, he was not – he was not like he appears to be now, or at least if he was, he was not as overt about it as he appears to be now. I, I suspect that quite often, unless you're part of the Westboro Baptist Church, Gary, you don't appear that way uh, on a minute-by-minute basis. And my brief, ex- my very brief meeting with Mr. Card some years ago was perfectly affable, but was quite brief, and he seemed like an entirely sane and reasonable human. It's just mm-hmm. later he seemed a bit less so. But yeah, so I don't have too many sort of bug under glass kind of people, Gary. No, um, but but you know, there are people every now and again who would be it'd be interesting to see who would sort of what they'd be like. I mean, I used years years ago, back back before the internet and before Locus, I guess mm-hmm. occasionally you'd wonder what someone was like, and then you'd meet them later and find that they were different, more interesting, whatever else. Well, I mean, the, I, I guess I guess you're right. There there are a lot of people who I will. Uh, politely refrain from naming good men who are just absolutely delightful people to talk to and I would hang out with them as much as I could if we didn't have to talk about their books <laughs> oh we are going to draw a discreet curtain across that conversation Gary, Gary. I think that's not going to go very well but yeah however I'd just like to say that if you're listening to this podcast and you're a writer we don't mean you you're brilliant no, and we love hanging around with you well in, in anyone any any writer with the discrimination to be listening to this podcast is exactly the person I want to have dinner with tomorrow night. Why tomorrow night? What's on? I don't care. I did, did just, uh, what, what, whatever the next meal is. Um, <laughs> okay. Anybody listens to the, any, any famous writers who listen to this podcast, I will buy a meal for you. That didn't sound needy, did it? <laughs> Only if you're pinned to it, the note, if you actually vote for me for the Hugos. Then it's oh, that's media. <laughs> that's, that's pathetic. That's, that, that, that's, that's that's bordering on groveling. I know. Ah, <laughs> uh, boy, we need to just move right along. Have you? Ha, how's your science fictional life been this week, Gary K. Wolf? Well, uh, I, I I just have been reading an odd. This is an odd time of the year to be reviewing books because there are some very exciting books uh, coming out in October and November. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that I I am very anxious to read and review. I mean, there's a new collection of. Uh, Caitlin Kernan's story is coming out in November. There's this new collection of um, of um, Rachel Swirsky's stories, How the World Became Quiet, which I'm really looking forward to. It's a I September don't have a copy 30th. of that. September 30th, though. Ah, oh, gee, that's... Well, well, hang on, wait a sec. But you're what month are you reviewing for? August? Um, or is it July? Is it July I or just August? finished... I'm just working on July now, so August will be next. So you could do that next uh, month? I could do it next month. I absolutely yeah. could. Um... Uh, and there's so there are odd things, but generally, what I'm saying, my point was initially that the the most interesting books that are are either out or close to being out, or they're out in the UK and not coming out in the United States, or they're coming out in the yeah. fall. This is not 
the, the summer season is not a hotbed of, um, of innovative science fiction publishing by and large, and never has been. Well, that, that might be so, but I mean, let's face it. Well, let's let's run a counter argument. If it wasn't for the fact that the world has moved on, and it's harder for everybody to get review copies of books, in my experience, you know, so like right now, mm. there's I think there I can think of three major major in my mind Golan's titles that are coming out in the next six or eight weeks that we don't have copies of yet. Mm-hmm. There would be uh, the adjacent by Christopher Priest. Which looks um, really, really interesting, and, and that's, he's gotten right. And that's due out on the twentieth of June from Golans, and so that's what a month away. And normally, I would have hoped to have seen a copy of that. That would have been awesome. Uh, there's um, the new Graham Joyce novel, The Year of the Ladybird, that's due out on the same day as the um, the Chris Priest book. Mm-hmm. That looks really good as well. I remember talking to Graham about that last year in in. Um, in Montreal. In Toronto. In Toronto, no, Toronto in, rather, excuse me. I know all those Canadian world world conventions I know. blur together, it's, it's, don't they? Pretty much, can, yeah, Canada. But they don't. They do not blur together. I mean, Montreal had, that was for. Well, I was in Montreal three years ago for. <laughs> for what? Worldcon or something. Yeah, no. Yeah, that was Worldcon where, where um, they had the nice French Quarter. It was much nicer, actually, than, um, what was the one in the middle of nowhere? I always forget the well, one. we were Suburban Toronto. Oh, no, no, no. The one near Banff. Oh, the one Calgary. Calgary. Yeah. See that that was a great convention, but it's small. The whole town smelled of cow crap, Gary. Do you remember that? You I went didn't out the go back. To Calgary. You didn't go to Calgary. Calgary was good. I've been in Calgary, and and we drove up to Banff, and I don't know why they didn't have the World <laughs> Fantasy Convention in the Banff Hotel or in the Lake Louise Resort. That yeah. would have been cool, but probably expensive. Anyway, we're getting off the subject. You were well, we talking are. about the fact. Here are two export. The other thing that's interesting to me about this is uh, the Graham Joyce novel, and we should pause to send very good thoughts yes, to Graham. Seriously, yes. Yeah. He announced just recently yeah. that he's very unwell, and we wish him and, a speedy, speedy recovery. He's, he's a dear friend of the podcast, a fine man, and a brilliant writer. Yes, absolutely, and getting more brilliant. I mean, he's getting. He's, well, he's I don't got think an get more brilliant. You can get more skilled. You're gonna be as brilliant good, as you are. Well, I think that's true. Um, <laughs> Just I think, to be argumentative. Gee, he has an instrument. I'm not, 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 don't, don't. Yeah, don't yeah keep going. It's just going to be really good. It's like Yo-Yo Ma with a cello. You know, he's, he is learning to fine-tune an instrument which he has had for some time. Indeed. Uh, Indeed. I'm just going to back out of this conversation altogether. <laughs> Graham, get well soon. Please, please, please yes. Uh, and I cannot wait to see the novel because every one of his does something different and unexpected from what the previous one does. My point was, and this is what excites me about a novelist, yeah. is you you know what they do well, and they do what they do well again, but they do it in a way which is unexpectedly different from what you saw before. So every time you're expanding the kind of uh, nuance and subtlety and dimension and resonance in those novels. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think Christopher Priest is the same kind of writer. Yeah. Uh, he's He's been more uh, over the map in some ways, but I guess his last book was The Islanders, mm-hmm. which I liked quite a bit. But which, uh, and isn't and that long ago. It was not that long ago. A year or two so, ago. Two years but, ago. Exactly. But but that was a kind of a revelation to me, even though I'd read some of those stories. And several years ago, a separation, I thought was just stunning. It was yeah, just like yeah. nothing else really I'd seen in terms of alternate history. Yeah. 
So yeah, of course I'm looking forward to these. Neither of which are coming out in the United States anytime soon, and no. I don't know if they're available to you in Australia now or later. But uh, that well, they're not available yet. We they will be available later. But uh, let's face it, I mean Gary, apart from trying to get get um, galleys, we're all going to be on to our our favorite online store so we can get a hold of them quickly. Well, that's probably true. Because, I mean, you want the new Graham Joyce, you want the new Christopher Priest. I noticed that on the same day of release, because Golan's are obviously having a quiet time, they're putting out the new Terry Pratchett, Steve Baxter book. You know, the sequel to mm -hmm. The Long Earth, which I think you reviewed for us. Yeah, it'll be mostly a Stephen Baxter book. Um, and probably um, a very good one. And it'll be a fine one. Stephen Baxter, is, uh, he, he's another writer who is, 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 is no longer following the trajectory that he seemed to be following when he began. Yeah. Uh, with the very hard SF Zeely stories and then the very Wells-inspired Victorian stories, the sequel to The Time Machine and that sort of thing. And then, and then he's all over the map. Then he's, he, he, he's, he's telling us animal stories. He's doing evolution fables. He's doing uh, an imaginary continent between... Uh, the British Isles, and and he's now always, he's doing the Long Earth, which is. But he's always done that. Right? I will say, just just to argue with a little point you made earlier mm -hmm. on, you said sort of it's a weird quiet time, and October November was when it warms up, right? Uh huh. There's actually a hell of a lot of books coming out in, out in June, a whole bunch of books coming out in July. There's a new Charlie Stross book that I've read, Neptune's Brood, which I think is very good. Uh -huh. there, there are no fewer than two new Al Reynolds books. All in the summer. Uh, all yeah, June, June July, August. Oh. Harvest of Time is due out in June, and On the Steel Breeze is due out in August from uh, Al. Uh, Harvest of Time won't appeal to you, I don't think, because it's a Doctor Who novel. But uh, the other one is the sequel to Blue Remembered Earth, which should be terrific. Should be terrific, yeah. Uh, to argue with your, well, to address your issue of Steve Baxter, he has a major new science fiction novel coming out in September, a book called Proxima, which isn't, mm -hmm. I don't think it's a Zeely book. But is a real hard SF novel from the, from the description of it. Oh, I, I never meant to imply that Stephen Baxter had given up his no, hard no, SF I didn't, no, 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 no. Like he's added more and more branches to it. Yes, and for those people who aren't like you and I, Gary, who have you know sort of have been who have been reading ahead, uh, within two days of actually this tells you actually June is going to be a kick-ass month. I just hadn't really thought about it because uh -huh. as well as. A new Reynolds, a new uh, Joyce, and a new um, uh, Priest novel. We'll get uh, the new uh, Neil Gaiman novel. We'll come out within two days of those books. Ah. So you know, there's a few things going on, Gary K. Wolf. I stand corrected. I Good guess, man. Uh, okay, yeah, I stand corrected in terms of what's actually going on in the world. Yeah. I. Maintain my position in terms books in terms of books that have been sent to me to today. Read. Yes. Uh, uh, yeah. Now, I've, 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 as as you have, I've read the Neil Gaiman novel some time ago, and I'm very fond of it. Uh, mm. But does raise the issue that, uh, and, and, and I know we sound like terribly privileged elitists that we're complaining <laughs> about not having books in hand that won't be out for months yet. Yes. Uh, Subset of first world large, problems. It is, yeah. It is getting more difficult to get uh, advanced copies. Yeah, it um, seems to me. I think it's partly because we're in a transitional stage. I think that publishers are transitioning to providing um, review copies electronically, and some of them are still quite uncomfortable with it. I mean, I think uh -huh. my recollection, and I, if I am wrong, I apologize out of the box. I don't mean this critically. I think Golans, for example, are a little uncomfortable distributing electronic galleys at this point. 
uh, and they are, for my money, the preeminent science fiction imprint in the world at the moment. So that makes it a little bit more difficult. I wonder if there have been cases of people actually leaking or distributing almost uh, certainly, Gary. Like almost certainly. So. You know, I'd be surprised if they weren't. Um, on the other hand, you know, sometimes is it better to be talked about than not? I don't know. Well, I mean, the question is uh, also in an internet age. Uh, with so many people basically being reviewers. I started to say counting themselves as reviewers, but they are reviewers. Yeah. How do you know who's trustworthy? I mean, to some extent, in the past, and this is not just true in the science fiction field, in the past, well, a name like Locus, or, an, or a name going even further in the past, like Science Fiction Chronicle, represented a certain degree of credibility and authority and security. Uh, as, I don't know, uh, the Guardian or Time Magazine did also. Now it seems uh, that there's there's not that level of um, standard resources. I mean, as much as I would like to believe that Locus remains one of the standard resources of the field, and I, I believe for many people it does, it's not the only one, and it's not one for a great many people. A great many people are not familiar with, with that sort of thing. So, well, I mean, Ansible, actually, I remember I got all the gossip for years from Ansible. Yeah. And, uh, and, and Dave, but that Ansible is Dave Langford's personal credibility and personal honor. So of course you trust that. Yeah. But you get beyond that, you're not really sure who's in charge of all these websites these days. I don't know. I, I think some of it is, you, 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 I mean, okay, we've talked often but not in detail about the atomization of the field. Mm -hmm. I think the discussion of the field has atomized similarly, you know, and so I think you find... Uh, voices you trust within the um, social sphere you circulate in, and there remain a few you know, points that you you, know, you you look at with trust. Uh, there will be particular voices, particular you know names. You know, sort of maybe people are aware of your reviews, maybe they're aware of Paul Kincaid's reviews, maybe they're mm -hmm. aware of whoever's it might be, right? And so they can trust those. So I think you have touch points, and 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 that's how how you navigate through. I don't think there is one way. There's there's one location anymore. I mean. Probably what you're thinking back to, I'm sure, is what Locus was like when I first encountered it in the mid-1980s. And, and, and at that point, I think it went through a golden patch from probably the end of the 70s through to the mid to late 90s. When mm. if you were, that was it. It was the voice of the field. It was the official organ right. of the field. And I mean, it still is to some degree. But it, I think the difference is... It's, there are now lots and lots of other sources where it was like the key source. And you would – I remember sitting in Perth in, you know, in the, the 80s waiting for the next issue because that's when you would find out what was happening. It was your fastest mechanism to and find things out. Yeah. yeah. Now, you know – By the way, when I mentioned Ansible, I was referring to the old paper edition of sure, Ansible. Sure, sure. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but now you find out that Graham Joyce is ill from his Facebook page. You find out that so-and-so's sold a new book on Twitter, um, and you read a, a review on Strange Horizons, and you read a, a passing comment on io9, and you compile up your various views, and you suddenly find that you've read James Bradley's review of a book. Greetings, James, out there. Or you've read Paul McCauley's passing comment about something, and you build up from those sort of credible sources. I think that's true, and maybe that's one of the reasons why um, I don't know. Did we mention this a couple of weeks ago? The this, this new anthology of the best of internet criticism of science fiction. 
Um, yes. No. We did mention it. No. Maybe. Well, okay. Let's mention it again. I, we should mention it again. And uh, <laughs> I was I was reminded of it by our friend Neil Harrison, but um, but I'm forgetting exactly who did it <laughs> and what the details are. I don't think it's come out yet, has it? Maybe it's not out. But it was an idea that we talked about. I know that our friends uh, – uh, there we go. No, 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 no. This is a different book. Don't worry. Yeah. Oh, it's a different book. Okay, we'll get to that. Um, we talked about this some years ago that there is there is uh, a huge amount of really good criticism and commentary and interviews and musings, autobiographical writings, whatever, all over the internet. And the idea was to collect these together, presumably on an annual basis, mm -hmm. and and thereby provide a kind of um, I don't know, guide to reliable sources no, and a way of rewarding um, the kind of, oh, ephemeral stuff that, that, that appears on the web. Here's an interesting thought about the web. Uh, when I was talking to somebody else about this this afternoon. On the one hand, it encourages ephemera. It, 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 it's, it's more more than weekly magazines. Something yeah. that you post is going to disappear hours later. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I'm, you probably noticed this when we're talking about the podcast on Twitter. I... You, you put up a podcast and all you people in England and Australia are talking about it, and I'm asleep. By the time I get to, by the, time I get to the Twitter conversations, at last post is six hours, and six hours ago, might as, the, the boat has left Southampton. We're halfway across the Atlantic. I might as well not. Uh, I think that's true. <laughs> so, so, so but, that kind of, but what that means is that you have these bon mots that you post, and they're gone, and, and, and then you have to do another one and another one and another one. Yes. So on the, on the one hand, Critical and um, oh, uh, critical and biographical and social commentary and and, and that sort of thing mm -hmm. becomes terribly ephemeral. It stays there forever, but you have to find it. Now, on the other hand, while criticism becomes more ephemeral, this was the argument I was or the discussion I was having with somebody else. Mm -hmm. Has the presence of ebooks, the presence of let's say Gutenberg, and certainly the presence of Amazon, restored the viability of backlists? In a sense that maybe a well, little. Here's, well, here's yeah, well, the thought. Sorry. Here's the thought that uh, publishers used to worry about the shelf life of books. Um, you'd worry about getting a book into the stores and out of the stores within a certain what six to twelve week window. Um, yeah. There was uh, and well, there are no shelves anymore. There are few stores anymore. So that shelf life issue is no longer a question. Yeah. You no longer have to pull your book off the shelf. At one point at O'Hare Airport in Chicago, because there was a, uh, the, a local remember, distribution yeah. distributed Levy Brothers. Um, and at one point, they, were, they, had, they had a guy who just went around all the book stalls in the airport replacing books. If a book didn't sell in six hours, it was pulled. Yes. Um, that was a shelf velocity was a term that was actually coined by B. Dalton, as I recall. And that's not an issue anymore. I mean, well, so few people it, seem to get their books from bookstores. That, it's it's it, not, not an issue. It's a different issue, Gary. All right. Because, I'll tell you why. Uh, backlist in print is just about dead, you know, mm. barring a few things, because you point. can't yeah. afford to keep print volumes on shelves, unfortunately. Mm. Um, but backlist in ebook, sure. But even there, obviously, there are issues because um, you're seeing some – competition for who gets to put out the, that backlist yes absolutely you know you get author mill kind of publishers who are just trying to spew titles out you get mainstream publishers or major publishers who are taking quite a lot of care you hope and then you get the authors doing it themselves uh -huh. and putting out their own backlist i mean i know that graham joyce 
to, to name check our friend again, p puts mm -hmm. a number of his own books out uh, through Amazon and has done very well with it. And there are other authors who have established names who are increasingly doing that, taking old out-of-print titles. I mean, I'll be honest, I've thought about doing it myself with a few of my older anthologies, taking them out, uh -huh. dusting them off, putting it up online because there's no overt thing. But I know, for example, if I could go and buy... Okay, Let, let's say the Terry Carr Year's Best. If I could buy a run of the Terry Carr's Year's Best digitally, would I buy the early ones? Or the Judith Merrill ones that you were talking about? Yeah. You know, if I could buy those Judith Merrill uh, anthologies digitally and someone had taken the trouble to do it nicely so they'd gotten the original cover art, scanned it and cleaned it up a little bit and all that, I'd absolutely buy those. Well, and this is sort, sort of the, um, the long tail effect in publishing as it's existed in music for a long time that the... Um, you know, the, I, I forget what the exact statistics were in that original long tail article, um, but it was some some phenomenal proportion of actual downloads over a period of time were in the bottom ten percent or something like that of of actual sales. Mm. I, 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 the, my my point is that it doesn't take more than four or five people a year to download an early Judy Merrill collection to make it worthwhile. Well, that's obviously the author mill philosophy, and I think that, that's right. And I, th I think for some reason, if you take the, – the, the real trick is taking care of it. I mean, I, I was toying with the idea of doing something along these lines myself because what frustrates me when I come across, well, reprint print books as well as e-books is when there's a lack of care. I, I, I want them nicely designed. You know, I, want, I, I understand I, that. You know, I want decent cover art. Uh, okay, I'll give you an idea, an example. I was thinking about doing uh, – the idea of doing an ebook line of classic short stories, mm -hmm. um, maybe novellas, because novellas might actually be more ideal. And I'm thinking, well, how do you do it? Well, you'd, you'd want to get a good, clean copy of the text so you've got it right and actually proof right. it so it's not horrible to read because it's amazing how getting a bad copy of text will put you off. I mean, I was sent a galley the other day of a new anthology, and I, I will get past this, but there were three significant errors in the opening sentence of the story, of the opening story, and I felt like not reading the book after that. You mean like typos? or just, Yeah, yeah, typos. Uh... What it looked like is they'd done track changes on the text, and when you'd flattened it out, out the text into a PDF or something, uh -huh. it had revealed all the, ch the text changes, but it was garbled mess now to try and read the opening sentence. And you're going, well, I don't really want to do that. So anyway, the real point is you want mm. good, clean text. You want a nice-looking piece of cover art. Mm. And maybe, depending on it, a little bit of uh, framing text, maybe an introduction, something, to make it seem like a nice package. I think that's true. And, and, and you want to, in your case at least, and I would hope in anybody's case, want to, to some extent, take advantage of your reputation as editor by getting the best text. In other words, yeah. if, 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 if Jonathan Strawn has put this thing up there, then it's, 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 it's something that we can trust. I mean, I came up I didn't come up against this, but it was certainly an issue that was discussed a lot when we were doing the Library of America things. And sometimes, especially with short fiction, that's more of a problem than it is with novels. I know there was a famous example, which I suspect you're familiar with, of a very distinguished science fiction and fantasy scholar uh, a few years ago doing a book for Oxford uh, in which he was more or less boasting about the fact that he was doing classic science fiction stories from the original appearances in the pulps. Yeah. Well, the original appearances in the pulps were sometimes absolutely mutilated by editors who would <laughs> yeah, well, rewrite, yes. chop paragraphs off. Yes. You'd, and, 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 and so the argument you always come up with from a sort of bibliographical perspective is do you – do you take the sometimes butchered version that actually appeared in the magazine, uh 
Uh -huh. um, the author's original manuscript or some later author's preferred manuscript. And I know the common bibliographical wisdom is you take the last copy the author saw, yeah. the last corrected copy. However, that becomes a problem because then you're faced with the question, are you not misrepresenting the reading experience of people who originally read the story and made it a classic? Sure, I can see that. I mean, the author that comes to mind for me, and it's not critical, is Harlan Ellison. Harlan has retouched a number of his texts over the years. Mm -hmm. Maybe not significantly, but he, he's retouched them. Uh, I, I have this sort of nagging recollection that he made a change or two to Jeff TS5, for example, over time. Uh, I think he did, and uh, and some of the earlier stories, uh, Harlan had a habit for a long time. There was a discussion in a discussion board I was involved in, is why isn't there a best of Harlan Ellison? And you and I have talked about this. Mm -hmm. We're not talking about Terry Dowling's The Essential Ellison. And one of the reasons is that when Harlan put together collections, he loved to resurrect some of his older and weaker stories. Mm -hmm. and sometimes he'd punch them up a little bit to make to, to, to remove things that were, frankly, a little bit embarrassing from them. Sure. Um, and I think all, all writers do that, but but so, so you're really caught in a kind of bind, and this is a terribly, uh, I suppose, uh, narrowly focused conversation that might not be of interest to anybody listening to us. On the one hand, you do have the magazine or the publisher that originally presented this book, which may be mutilated. Yeah. At the other extreme, you have an author who maybe 20 or 30 years later decides they want to do a corrected edition and update yeah. everything in it. And then suddenly you have uh, an edition which has – the author is saying, well, this is what I meant by that story. Yeah. Uh, and, and that can be as, as misleading and sometimes as disastrous as the original edits by the pulp editor. It, it can. I mean you, – you, but you're left – let's think about these examples of this sort of thing. Uh, if we want to protect the original reading experience of – Author of readers, right? Do you mm. then say that Larry Niven can't correct the opening lines of uh, uh, Ringworld to have the sun, uh, the, the Earth rotate the right way? Because in the in the first edition, he has it rotating the wrong way. Oh, correct. Yeah. So, uh, so can, no, you, can, can you correct that? Okay. So let's say we say, yeah, mm. you can correct that. Correct obvious errors. We're good with that. Mm. Okay. Uh, then let's look at the Jack Vance Integral Edition where a bunch of enthusiasts and scholars end up creating algorithms to try to predict what the original language of Vance would have used was and start restoring the titles that appeared on his draft manuscripts because they feel that, you know, Miserian the Magician was the original title that Jack had wanted instead of The Dying Earth, I think it was. Yeah. So really we should call it Missouri and the Musician rather than Di The Dying Earth. And you're going, but that makes no sense. That's madness. The book is The Dying Earth, right? Um, so there's that example. Right. And I think that is a point at which you're – I mean that sort of thing goes on in mainstream uh, historical literature all the time. Tribal, people trying to figure out, okay, what was the original – the original version of Frankenstein. You know, mm. there's, um, so, but by and large um, – these are things being done sometimes by fans, sometimes without any any set of principles, and trying to recreate what they believe the author's intention was. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's misleading. I, I, I think it's uh, what you get is essentially guesswork. Sure. Um, and then you also get Heinlein's, that's something like Red Planet Mars. You get the restored editions, which 
to my mind, which is the only one of those I read, uh, was actually stripped out a lot of the appeal of the original. Yeah, see, this, this is interesting. This, this, that, that example is one that's always... I, I, troubled me is not the, the right word, uh, but I really think that the, um, the Heinlein ones were a mistake, I think. You know, those books should they should not have restored the original text. Um, now I don't know if that's see this is interesting because see this is what what happened with say Stephen King in the Stand where he restored the longer edition and everybody was like oh wow the longer edition. I don't know if it was better or not. With the 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 uh, Highland ones, I read them and they almost universally were not better. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's one of those things where it's okay, it's okay to do it if it's better, but who gets to say if it's better? Well, who's to say it's better? Uh, a part of what goes on, and it, it, it seemed to be going on with the Jack Vance, and it seemed to certainly be going on with the Heinlein, is the notion that the words of the author are sacred and editors are, by nature, butchers. Yeah. And the fact is that the science fiction field, from its beginning, has benefited enormously from editors who frequently were very intrusive. Yeah. That's and there true. are classic stories, and, 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 and a great many writers, I was just... Uh, well, I was, I was just reading another forthcoming book, The Best of Connie Willis, and she's enormously grateful to people who have helped her sure. uh, with her books, with her manuscripts, and that sort of thing. And, yes. and a lot of writers are. A lot of writers I've seen and heard express gratitude toward editors that kept them from doing something really dumb in a novel or a story. Well, yes, that's true. I, I guess uh, – but, but what if you feel like – okay. But then the argument there would be if the author feels the editor did a great job, then stick with what they did. But if the author feels the editor butchered the book, then go back? Um, that's an interesting question. And I'm not sure the what the answer to that is. I mean I, I think it to some extent has to be a judgment call. It's, it's the same thing like um, – you know, director's cuts of movies. I mean, there, there are three or four different director's cuts of Blade Runner by now. Which one is right? One of them, which I saw, is actually better than the original. Another one is a half hour longer. Um, and to some, ex some extent, this comes down to individual taste. And to some extent, it comes down to what you know about the individual editor. Yeah. I know a number of writers um, who expressed a great deal of – H.L. Gold is a good example. He was a yeah. very intrusive editor, apparently. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know whether it was Daniel Keyes Daniel Keyes who told me this, but it may have been Damon Knight who said it. And it's a famous line about Horace Gold that he could, um, he could, he could, he he could take a mediocre story and make it into a pretty good story, and he could also take a great story and make it into <laughs> a pretty good story. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, you get relationships that are famous, where, where you know, <clears throat> Damon Knight is is widely known to have been the best editor of. Uh, R.A. Lafferty's work. Yeah. You know, where he, uh, where he was perceptive enough and in tune enough that he could take Ray's stuff and edit it really well. Well, and you were talking about this on Twitter as well. Look at the stuff that people like Terry Carr and, 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 and Bob Soberberg and, um, oh, a handful of others um, were doing in the 60s and 70s. They were yeah. editing stories by, by Lafferty, by Le Guin, by Tom Dish. They were editing stories that are now canonical. Can you and, imagine? I mean, can you imagine? I was looking at this. The things I was saying on Twitter. Can you imagine being Bob Silverberg? I mean, okay, he was already Bob Silverberg by then, and Bob, who is a dear friend, is not short of ego. So I'm sure he could be able to do this quite well. But the idea that you could get 
in your mailbox for a single anthology uh, that, that was The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin mm-hmm. and The Girl Who Was Plugged In by James Tiptree, both of which appeared in the same anthology. Mm, amazing. And you're kind of going, oh, my God. But but is that one of those cases, and I don't know this, I'm absolutely determined I'm going to ask Bob when I see him next. Mm-hmm. So is that one of those ones where you you know you open the envelope from from Le Guin, you read the story and you go, well, my work here is done. Mm-hmm. Or was there editing that had to be done? Were there things that had to be restored and fixed and changed? It'd be really interesting to know. Well, I mean, I think the thing uh, by by the mid '60s, Le Guin had a pretty strong reputation. The ones that fascinate me are the people like the people who read the first James Tiptree stories, mm-hmm. the people who read the first Cordwainer Smith stories, which got rejected. It was I forget what it was. A fantasy book published that. Yes. Uh, originally. And at some point, there's an editor who maybe not, may, may not be a very good editor that sees a story and say, says, this is so bizarre, I'd better not touch it because I'm not sure what it's about, and lets it go. And then you get scanners live in vain. Uh, I don't know what went on with that. I could see somebody... I well, it was, see well hang on, editor. it was Fred Paul who published Scanners Live in Vain. Originally? I thought it was. I might be wrong. I may miscollect, but I thought he was the guy who pulled that out of um, out of nowhere. I thought that was in um, a short-lived pulp oversized magazine called Fantasy Book, and I may be wrong. Are you looking it up right now? I will, if I can do it without disrupting the podcast, I will actually quietly have a look. But my recollection okay. was that the guy who put more did Paul, no, Paul pulled it out, I'm sure. Okay. Um. I mean, it was published in Fantasy Book in 1950. Yeah. Ah, no, there's, see, I misrecalled. If this story is correct, basically, Fred Pohl read it, read Scanners Live in Vain. Uh, Oh, no. Okay. Fantasy Book was Bill Crawford, wasn't it? Yeah, fa- fa- uh, Paul read it in fra- in um, fantasy book and then uh, reprinted it in his anthology Beyond the End of Time, where it was yes. more widely read. Mm-hmm. So there you go. But my point is that I, th- I think if it's if it's William Crawford, after whom the Crawford Award is named, but who is not a very widely respected editor by writers at the time, I gather. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Crawford is the sort of person who would look at something as complex as a Cordwainer Smith story and try to mess with it. I think he would probably think this is just really weird and I'll just throw it out there, uh, which is a good thing to do. Could you yeah. imagine? Could you imagine what John W. Campbell would have done <laughs> trying to make Cordwainer Smith's universe well, align with his notion of the future? I, I've got a funny feeling that probably what would have happened would have been, and I could be completely wrong, Gary, is that somebody would have looked at it and gone, "I've got a magazine to fill, and I don't know. This is sort of kind of interesting. I'll just chuck it in there." And then find out that it got picked up and did really well. I think that's possible, too. And, it's, and it goes back to a point we were talking about last week, which is the importance of anthologists such as yourself. Uh, there is uh, interesting thing. Uh, just an example of a story that completely, as far as I know, got resurrected by an anthologist. Yeah. Uh, there's, a, there's a World War I horror fantasy by a Wal- or Walter Owen, a British writer, called yeah. The Cross of Carl. Uh, the, the reason this became a matter of discussion a couple of years ago was that uh, John Clute's lexicon of horror, A Darkening Garden, makes repeated yep. references to this book, which was published, I think, in 1931 in a limited edition and just disappeared. It was a no- really not even a novella. Uh, 
But that book was plucked out of nowhere by Groff Conklin in a 1951 or 52 anthology called In the Grip of Terror. And that brought it to the attention of a much wider audience. Um, There is some evidence, and I'm not sure that I could defend this too too, um, uh, enthusiastically, (laughs) but it's now considered a classic. No, Jack Finney's novella, The Circus of Dr. Lau, got resurrected by Ray Bradbury for a collection called The Circus of Dr. Lau and Mm -hmm. other stories. It also sort of got resurrected by a, a movie, but... But again, it's a book which was forgotten, and an anthologist put it back in play. Uh, in the case of Cordwainer Smith, you just mentioned that Fred Pohl really put that story into play. Yeah. And there are a lot of stories that um, it seems to me um, might come and go without much notice if somebody didn't. I'm using the phrase put them into play because I just thought of that, and I like it. I'm thinking of David Marisek's early stories. Sure. Uh, I'm thinking of... Uh, Greg Egan's early stories. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I, I think it's hard to know how much credit to give to a particular publisher or person or not. But I think, yes, a, a particular publication, a particular uh, edition, something like that, absolutely can, as you say, uh, put it into play, get it out there and get it talked about at the right moment. And then it gets picked up in the zeitgeist in the whirl of a moment and suddenly it's well-known and does well, you know. I think that absolutely happens. And to some extent, that's how a canon of short fiction gets formed over time. And I've never done this, and I don't think anybody is, and somebody with a computer and better databases than I have could do it. But I'm, 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 I'm fairly certain that if you went back and looked at things like, oh, I don't know, the original Science Fiction Hall of Fame, uh, the vote that was taken in, yeah, what, 1967 or 68, um, that those stories are largely stories which were widely anthologized. Probably, well, yeah, they'd have to. Yeah, I, would, I would think that's probably a fair bet because you're still in that that, that those mythical days, Gary, when um, everybody knew everybody within the science fiction field. It seemed everybody was reading everything. Small, tight, focused group, common dialogue. So yeah, I would have thought most of those stories were well known. That was. That book followed a period when the pulps were being mined by anthologies widely. So you're already distilling down, you know, sort of 30 years of astounding or something down to a batch. And then the voted batch came, probably all came from that. So yeah, I would think that all those stories were widely discussed at that time. I think that's true. And, not, and I think that there's a, there are these waves of anthologies. and the, 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 But that, that, that's my point. It keeps things alive. Um, you're right that Astounding was mined, I mean, between 1937 and 1950, uh, I have no idea what proportion of Astounding stories got reprinted in anthologies 10 years later. Yeah, yeah. Because there was this massive uh, outpouring of, of, of August Derleth and Judith Merrill and Groff Conklin yeah. and uh, Blyler and Ditke, this huge just, just blossoming of the science fiction anthologies in the 50s. And what they did essentially was reprint Astounding from the 40s. Uh, so there's a huge chunk of that. And then you're right. Those were the stories that were read. They were originally published in, in the magazines in the 40s. They were almost all reprinted. All the good ones were reprinted sometime in the 50s, probably. Yeah. And those are the ones that the people voting in the 1960s were working from. Um, but I still think there are stories and reputations uh, today that derive as much from anthologizations. Did I say that right? Well, we'll pretend. As, well, I mean. Um, Ted Chang, 
every story has been I, 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 I'd be amazed if there's not a story by Ted Chang that's not been outside anthologized outside of his own collection. Well, I'm sure every single story has. I would be surprised. Oh, no. Well, hang on. I can think of stories of his that probably have not been anthologized at all, at least one. Uh, mm-hmm. But but it's not been in a collection either because, of course, remember, Ted still only had the one collection. Right. But I would have thought uh, the life cycle of software objects has, has not been uh, anthologized. That's probably true. On the other hand, it was a standalone book. Um, it was published as a standalone book, uh, which I don't know. I mean, why would well, – I don't know. Um, a book uh, – well, I think novellas are a different problem. Are they? I mean, the, the, there's no doubt that the life cycle of software objects – I mean, you could put together a, Ted, a complete Ted Chang right now, which I'm sure well, – oh, yeah. which I guess Ted wouldn't be particularly interested in. I'm just guessing because I don't know. I don't – um, which would collect, you know, which would then expand it across, to, say, the four stories or, or so of his that haven't been collected yet. Mm-hmm. I think there's four or five, maybe. Um, and it still wouldn't be a huge book because the original uh, collection, uh, Stories of Your Life, which came out in what twenty or two, is mm. not an incredibly long book. No, it's it's a fairly modest collection. But oh. he must be getting close, actually, Gary. Hello, world. Because in between the life cycle of software objects and the merchant and the alchemist, they're fairly long stories. Uh, so if you add what's expected of us, Exhalation and Daisy's patent automatic nanny, uh-huh. you, get, you get one more decent novella or a couple of more shorts and you're, you're at a book. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I, I get distracted. Well, no, I mean, but, but, but the point is, again, that, uh, that there are especially quirky or unusual writers or challenging writers whose careers are consi- significantly boosted, if not actually jump-started, by anthologies. Sure. Uh, and I know that when uh, I, when you find something, and especially something in an out-of-the-way place, and I, I used to talk to Gardner, if he found something in an out-of-the-way place, mm-hmm. it was always a sense of discovery because this is a book, this is a story which... Most science fiction and fantasy readers will not have seen, and you're more or less bringing it into the fold. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that can be true. I, mean, I, I can think of, of, of once or twice uh, in, in my you know, when I've felt like I was partly involved with that, and I've certainly seen it happen elsewhere when a, an author, maybe an author appears somewhere, a particular story takes off, or you see them repeated. I mean, the ex- one mm-hmm. example would be, say, um, Susanna Clarke. Mm-hmm. Who really first came to my attention through the work she did in anthologies with um, Starlight, the, uh, the Starlight, the Patrick Nielsen Hayden anthology yeah. series, uh, which you know, I wouldn't say it propelled her to stardom. You know, uh, there was the, there were the discussions at the time of uh, Singing My Sister Down by Margaret mm-hmm. Lanigan, and how that brought her to gr- greater attention at the time. Obviously, I mean, some people it just happens. I mean, let's say with Ted Chang. I mean. He happened to publish his first story in Omni. Well, and, that's true. And and when you publish to to an audience of potentially a million people, in what was the major market of the day, you know, and I think as I recall, and I could be incorrect, but I don't think I am. His first probably yeah, his I was going to say his first two or three stories, but certainly the the first stories, Tower, Tower of Babylon appeared appeared there, and that you know, sort of would have given him a, a great kind of... It would have given him a, a great push and that sort of thing. 
I guess the other question, I could have looked this up, I suppose, but you probably know the answer, is let's say a successful year's best anthology. Mm-hmm. Let's just take yours and Gardner's, for example. <laughs> okay. But, well, the reason I'm mentioning yours and Gardner's is you're likely to know the answer to this. What is the sale or circulation of a year's best anthology at that fairly highly visible level compared to the average circulation of the major magazines? Hmm. Less. Significantly less. Or uh, well, less. the number that's, that circulates in my mind for Asimov's and Analog is about 25,000 copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding, and it's hard to ascertain the value of this. I'd be very curious to see the actual statistics cl- up close. But your Clark's Worlds and your Tor.coms get more page impressions than that. Yeah. Now, what I'd be very curious to, to see, because it's relevant, is how long people are spending on those pages. Well, that's exactly. That's the problem. With and, and they have that information. And I'm not saying for a second. Oh, they that do. They, they, oh yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, there's no reason that they should publish that information. I'm not asking them to do so. But, you know, if, if you have 100,000 user sessions on your page and the average uh, time on the page is 15 minutes or so, you can say that people are going there and reading the story completely. If, however, the average time on page is 30 seconds or a minute or something, you know they're either downloading it or they're not reading it. So that would be interesting to see. I'd be really interested mm. to see what that is. And that just shows the reason I'm confident that they have that information is it's a basic analytics piece of information that you pick up on a web page. Well, yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm suggesting is well, not necessarily that the magazines – are, are less significant, but that there's a, uh, there's a critical mass, at which point anthologies, which, and your best anthologies frequently, at least in the States, make it into public libraries. I, I was um, going to say, they're differently significant is the first thing, because they're hmm. years best, and that, that, that terminology, I think, changes how people look at the stories that are in a book. And then the other thing about it is that they have quite often significantly greater shelf time, mm-hmm. or shelf life. So quite obviously, you know, a magazine has its 30 days or 90 days, whatever it might be, on shelf, where, um, you know, uh, an anthology will be on on a bookshelf for, for longer than that, on a library shelf for an incredibly long period of time. I haven't yet seen, because I haven't really thought to look for it, a metric comparing online time to shelf time. Because, because the online time can be indefinite. I know stuff that's been on, online for... 15 years. Well, yeah, and writers can, as you mentioned, can keep their own stories online as long as they want to and can yeah. cycle them in and out. And, and I'm, I'm going to make a guess that most of the authors I'm familiar with, the ones that I follow, have at least a few of the stories on their own websites, or at least links to their stories on their own yeah, websites. Yeah, so, something like that because, would be pretty normal. Well, I, the point is the more exposure an author gets, the more, uh, well, basically the better. And I think that it's no longer possible, I think, for an author to make a reputation solely in a magazine. It's difficult. Um, Or in a series of magazines, or in a series of uh, online publications, original anthologies, and that sort of thing. I mean, for example, I'm looking, uh, one of the, certainly one of the most distinguished authors to have emerged in the last few years is, is, is Rachel Swirsky, yeah. uh, whose book I'm looking at right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and who you published, as a matter of fact, uh, in Eclipse 4. Um, yes. But 
a lot of whose stories uh, I'm looking at right now. They've been in Tor.com. They've been on Clark's World. They've been in Subterranean Magazine. They've been in Life on Mars. And a lot of them have later shown up in Year's Best anthologies. Yeah. And when you have a hot new writer or an interesting new writer or a writer with a great deal of variety like Rachel, then it's more or less up to the anthologist to say, this is somebody we need to be watching. Some people, loyal readers of the magazines, know no, her already. There's some truth to that. And certainly you get a, a metric where you could sit there and go, well, what percentage of an, how much work is an author producing? What percentage ends up in the US Best? What percentage ends up getting an awards? Mm. And how interesting will the final book be? But I don't know that anybody's ever actually computed that metric, Gary. I don't really necessarily, I mean, you, you, the, the term you're using is one that I bet, your, I bet your day job uses, because I know the trustees of the Roosevelt University, where I teach, are always talking about metrics, and they want objective <laughs> measures of things that can't be objectively measured, which is what always makes me nervous about things like this. Yeah. No, no, and I think you're but, right. Uh, but by and large, I, I think that you know writers who are very um, clever about managing their careers are very... Uh, sometimes overly concerned about getting into year's best anthologies or getting award nominations, which is a similar kind of thing. Yeah. You get a Hugo Award nomination and suddenly you know, your story is there for free for thousands of people who signed up for the convention. This is true. This is true. I understand that. All of which is uh, goes back to the question which we've sort of touched upon, zeroed around and circled around and not zeroed in on. Of of how reputations are made these days. Word of mouth. Because Gary. it's a lot it's a lot more complicated question than it was fifty years ago. I mean uh, or sixty, seventy years ago, your reputation was made if John W. Campbell liked you. And and then your reputation could be made if Campbell or yeah. Boucher and McComas or Gold liked you. And or Betty Ballantyne liked you. Uh, now it's there 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 are no centers to the field like that. Or Omni. You mentioned Ted Chang and Omni. Yeah, Ellen yeah. Datlow could make a writer when she was working with Omni. And, well, one and, issue, and, and one she, she also could a bit with Event Horizons. I think it's harder in an anthology series to make a writer, frankly. I think that's where magazines actually have a a strength. You know, you could argue – I would have to look back at it. I want to say that uh, John Joseph Adams you – know, I mean, you're, one, one of the, metri the ideas of whether you decide someone's been successful as an editor is whether you can uh, assign – writers to them, you know, like for the help find. And I just thought yep. off the top of my head that Genevieve Valentine um, ties pretty closely to uh, to JJA. Though um, I might I might be wrong, but I mean that, that's the impression I kinda have. He's published um, you know uh, he's published a lot of her yeah. stuff. Well I don't necessarily uh, I mean, one of the things you had going with Eclipse, may it rest in peace, uh, was a recognizable group of writers. It wasn't as, because Eclipse didn't yeah. go on long enough, it wasn't as recognizable as Universe or as um, New Dimensions. Yeah. Uh, both of which you now look back and say, wow, look at look at these stories that Terry Carr and Bob Silverberg were buying. I mean, yeah. um, and you've got, you've got Lafferty and you've got Dish and you've got Le Guin and you've got Russ and so forth and so on. Um, and I think the anthology, the anthology can do that probably more easily than a magazine, simply Possibly. because a magazine has yeah. so much more product. Yes, I think that there's truth to that. I think there's truth to that. We spend a lot of time talking about anthologies, Gary. 
Well, we do because uh, we didn't finish our conversation last week, and I, um, I think that you have a lot to say about this that we haven't explored <laughs> fully. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, well, here's a question: uh, How much time do we have left? Oh, we've got about nine, nine or ten minutes. Well, we can get into this because this this was what I actually had in mind. Um, okay. Because you've been doing theme anthologies, and I, I read two statements lately, uh, within the last couple of days, literally, that made me think of this. One was. Uh, the best of Connie Willis for introduction. She says, I wish this were a theme anthology because then you could write an introduction because how do you write an introduction to the best of? Um, so she liked the idea of theme anthologies. And the other one was I was reading a new collection of really very funny stories by Eleanor Arneson called Big Mama Tales from Aqueduct. Um, I hope that's Aqueduct. Am I not, it I'm is. I'm in trouble. It's not. No, it yes, is. Okay. It's Aqueduct. Um, yeah. And... She says, a number of years ago, I began wondering what space-age tall tales would, would be like. And that's what these are. These are space-age tall tales. They're yeah. very funny, but they're full of, you know, knowledgeable science fiction imagery. Um, and, and that made me think, okay, space-age tall tales. That's not, a, that's not a theme anthology you would think of, necessarily. Or for that matter, I'm guessing even comic science fiction and fantasy would not necessarily be a theme you'd think of. Yeah. Because it's not marketable. Co uh, comic? No. Com well, comic com science fiction. Why, yeah, why does it... Okay, well, 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 let's take a step back. There have been comic science fiction anthologies. And, well, they've, I know. and they've done quite well. The problem is that... See, okay, comic science fiction anthologies are a bad example for one reason. Only a small subset of people have ever successfully achieved comic science fiction. And if you don't have those people in your book, you're not going to do okay. Right. And with Douglas Adams dead and uh, with uh, Terry Pratchett reaching the end of his career and never having been a prolific short fiction writer, uh, I think you're going to struggle. But the, the idea is not a bad one in and of itself if you had the range of writers to pick from. I mean, one of the, the issues is having a range of writers to choose from when you're looking to put together a book. Well, and, and, and that raises another issue as to why there's relatively little com comic science. I mean, so many of Connie Willis's stories are absolutely hilarious. Sure, they are. But the, the, the hilarity comes from the sort of comedy of manners that goes on in them more than from the science fictional idea. Uh, occasionally, I, a curious thing I looked up, uh, 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 because I just got curious, that uh, <laughs> we've heard discussions about, well, and, and I think John Scalzi has pointed this out, that you know, Red Shirts is up for a Hugo, and it's a comic novel. Yeah, which is unusual, uh, and comic novels generally and comic stories generally don't get recognized by Hugo's, in much the same way that comic movies generally don't get recognized well, by the I, Okay, I, I think it would be truer to say that uh, g generally uh, current you know, modern Western culture looks at comedy as being easier than uh, more dramatic fiction because it's lighter to read. Or writer lighter to experience. This is why generally comedies do do less well at awards. Comic fiction does less well at awards, and so on and so forth. It's not at all a, a science fiction specific thing. It's not at all science fiction specific, but I think there are ways in which it is. Okay. Uh, I mean, people in the mainstream, for example, are willing to read uh, and and canonize a novel by Joseph Heller, which is utterly hilarious. Most of Thomas Pynchon's stuff has very funny stuff, and a lot of Michael Chabon does to get to more. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, and science fiction and fantasy and, and well comic horror is kind of a different ball game let's stick to science fiction and fantasy um, 
almost never gets recognized with the Hugo Award. This is one of the things. So I thought I'd check back, and it turns out that, uh, yeah, it does get recognized by the Hugo Awards as long as it's by Connie Willis or possibly <laughs> Michael Swanwick. Yeah, yeah. And that's about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, part of what I was wondering uh, is, does that have to do with the notion that people who read science fiction get made fun of enough as it is? Um, and they, they don't <laughs> oh, want don't to know. be... I don't know if that's true. Well, I mean, it's it, it, there, there seems to be less of it than there used to be. The first comedy science fiction anthology goes back to 1953. I'm pretty sure it was Frederick Brown and Mac Reynolds' Science Fiction Carnival. Yeah. And I just... So I checked out the contents of that. Most of those were parodies of science fiction of the time. Yeah. Science fiction that makes fun of itself yeah. uh, makes some people uncomfortable. And it's not really using science fiction in a comic way. That's how Terry It's using Francis science started. fiction as a comic goat. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so what Douglas Adams did was actually very important, and what Terry Pratchett has done is very important, and some of what Connie Willis has done is very important. And I, I think for that reason, Scalzi's Red Shirts is important, because there is a sense at which we can laugh at this stuff without laughing at ourselves, without, without demeaning ourselves, I should say. Maybe. Maybe he says that sounding terribly convinced. See, I, I just a completely unrelated question that I would have put to you, which actually grew out of something I read about in anthology, which is kind of self-serving. Uh and that was, do commenters slash readers slash reviewers slash critics have reasonable expectations of books, particularly at times, I guess, anthologies or collections? And to clarify what I mean is, yes. I've just read a review of an Ellen Datlow, Terry Windling anthology, Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, which came out earlier this year. And the crux of the review has to do with how successfully the range of stories in the book successfully interrogate the topic of the or the theme of the book uh, right through to the whole range of political options, etc., etc. And I wonder if that reviewer in reviewing from that perspective had a reasonable expectation of the book. Based on... What do you suppose, the title of the book? The book is co called Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, and it's about what they call uh, gaslight fantasy stories set in a magical ver yeah, version I, of I, 19th I, century I, I, England. I, I, right? So you got the idea. And so mm -hmm. obviously there's a range of what you would do, 19th century style fiction. You can do stories set in the 19th century. If you're doing set in the 19th century during Queen Victoria's reign, there are all kinds of political ramifications that are that, that are yeah. fair enough to, to – to, um, consider and to, to whatever else but the question is is it reasonable to ex to judge the book and the authors or the anthologists rather on how completely the authors interrogate those issues no it's not at all it's it's, it's completely unfair it's imposing your own agenda on a book i mean it basically and i've seen a lot of reviews like this uh I hope I haven't written them, but I can't claim absolutely that I haven't, where, where there's a situation, and this has come up quite a bit with steampunk, you deal with Victorian England, which is a problematical society in all sorts of ways. It's an imperialist society. It's an elitist society. It's an oppressive. It's, 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 there, there are lots of bad things about it, and yet it attracts writers because of its steampunk potential. Does that mean that everybody who writes about that era has to deal with all the social injustices of that era or has to say interrogate it um i think it'd be an interesting anthology to do that but if you have an anthology with a title like queen victoria's book of spells 
that title suggests we are having fun with this idea. It doesn't suggest... I think that's sort of true, but... Okay. I I can see where you you may not hold individual writers to that standard, but what about the anthologists? Because they have 18 goes at interrogating the issues. Or is that still unreasonable? Well, they do. They do, but as you as you as you well know and have explained to me more than once, anthologists can't simply demand a particular story from a particular writer. You put out a call and you get what you think is superior enough to put in the anthology. Let let me play devil's advocate though, because I don't want to be sort of defending my own position much. Um, Why not? Why 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 if Author X sends you a story set in nineteenth century London that features a certain range of characters, can you say this this fails to interrogate that issue, I don't want it unless you rewrite it that way. I think an author could do that, and I think I think an editor could do that. And I think most authors, if they were not conceiving the story around those questions, would basically say, Fine, I'm taking my story back, I'll publish it somewhere else. In other words, you can't impose Maybe. an agenda on contributors to an original anthology. Well, you can't impose an agenda on contributors to an original anthology who won't let you impose an agenda upon them. Uh, hmm. I, I guess the, the the question comes back, and this is something which no um, reader will see and no edit, no uh, reviewer will see, uh, and it is what did the anthologists originally solicit? Mm-hmm. You know, so okay. for example, if. I'm going to edit Queen Victoria's Book of Spells, an anthology of Gaslight's fantasy. If in my original solicitation and my original pitch to the publisher, I say I'm going to interrogate the political ramifications of life in Victorian England, well, then if I fail to do that, that's a significant failure. But if it's but supposed to be, I'm going to put together a batch of fun stories. Hmm? You're the only one that's going to know that failure, basically, because well, well, it's not true. Great. I think that's true, but see, and, and, and I, see what I when I read that review, I, I, I read part of it as being uh, a statement that the editors failed, and I don't believe they did, but that the editors failed because they did not take that approach. Mm-hmm. And I see that you're right to say I see that reviewing position taken very very often, and I know that our friend of this podcast, uh, Elisa Krasnerstein is currently doing a PhD on the impact of politicized editing. Uh-huh. Oh, and, excellent. Yeah, it is. Really interesting. Topic. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Yes. And I guess what we're seeing now that I think about it is we're seeing an unprecedented rise in the demand for more politicized editing. I don't field. know that it's unprecedented, and I don't know that it's um, um, unique to this particular period. I think there's... There's always been a certain sense at which, um, when there were, when when there was, especially if there's a backlash against a certain kind of movement, there's been a backlash, as we know, against uh, the easy nostalgia of steampunk. The fact mm-hmm. is, the Victorian era had a great deal of ugliness about it in all sorts of ways, in it terms did, yeah. of gender relations, in terms of imperialism, in terms of industrialization, in terms of all sorts of near things, slave right. labor yep. and so forth. Well, and now, so you have a number of, and we talked about this actually when our friend Genevieve Valentine was on with us. You know, you can't ignore the darker side of, of, of Victorian England in order to talk, talk about their wonderful steam machines. Yeah. Um, but if you go back to uh, there was there was a period in the 60s where there was even a couple of years there there was even a couple of warring uh, competing anthologies with political agendas about the Vietnam War. Um, actually, Joe Haldeman did a 
anthology called Study yeah. War No More. And I think yeah. I forgot who it was that did an anthology called There Will Be War. Um, uh, Joe so Hol- you basically, Jack C. Holderman, I think. Well, no, it wasn't Jack Holderman who did There Will Be War, was it? I don't know, was it? Or was it uh, Jim Bain? That might be more like it. I'm totally but my point is, up because, you know, I, don't, I don't remember, but I, I've seen the book. I, I used to have it. So. Well, the point is that the, the Vietnam War raised the issue of uh, military science fiction, which had been glorifying war of one sort or another since the 1930s. <laughs> and can you really do that without talking about the... But because in the sure. 1960s, a number of critics um, and readers and some anthologists began to think, you know, you can't really talk about interspecies war without talking about some form of racism yeah. and oppression. Jerry Pornell um, edited the book. Jerry Pornell, uh, that makes all the sense in the world. It does, and that's why so I laughed, have, yeah. Okay, so so you have a Joe Haldeman anthology here and a Jerry Pornell anthology there, and you have a very divisive issue in between the two of them. We don't quite have that today, but we do have, um, when you add into the mixed reviewers, yeah. we do have a notion that can you really fairly write about the Victorian era as a romp? Can you do that anymore? Because you have to recognize the reality. And I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. But you know what I do think? I think the subject of politicized editing is an interesting one. I think we should come back to it because we're past time. And and readers or listeners to the podcast, hello everybody, would have noticed my daughter's now stuck her head in the door twice to to talk to me about the importance of downloading um, boy band videos onto her iPod. So I should probably go and engage with that. That's, because obviously that's far more, more important than anything we could be doing. She discovered music. Oh, it's great, but oh, Gary. There's an awful lot of boy bands out there. Um, well, when you, when you find out, as I did just a couple of weeks ago, that One Direction is ancient history. Oh, she then, still loves then, One Direction. I'm sorry, but in, in the States, One Direction is a joke. I don't know what's <laughs> next, but One Direction is gone. It's past. Justin Bieber, I think, might as well be Bob Dylan as far as the <laughs> are Oh, that might be the strangest thing I've heard all day. And, of course, you know, Jessica's into the wanted now. Oh, okay. Right. So they're the new thing. So I'm going to go and help her with the wanted. All right. Uh, we'll, we'll come back next week with a guest. I mean, maybe we'll get... Next week I will be actually attending WISCON, and I hope we Yay. can... And we'll, we'll have some WISCON. We'll do some Wisconsin podcasts. I'm doing another podcast elsewhere tomorrow. I'm going to be on Faithful. I've got to got to sit down this afternoon and read Analog so that I can do a podcast tomorrow about that. Interesting. I've not read one in years. Let me know how it goes. I will indeed. And Until we'll then, dude, I will talk to you All next right. week. We'll have another podcast. We promise. We're going to try to stick to weekly for a while. We'll yes. Possibly right through to World Fantasy if we can. Oh, and I should say, this evening the Aurealis Awards are on. Oh, so those results will be out. Um, yes, I am up for an award, and good luck to everybody. Good luck to our friend of this podcast, James Bradley, who's up for a podcast, and all sorts of other. Uh, not not for a podcast, up for an award, and good luck to all sorts of other friends of the podcast who also are up. Who I don't have the list of nominees in front of me, Rod. No, but okay. read you all that. But good luck tonight, and good luck to you. Yes, indeed. So until next week, Gary. When once again we shall podcast. We remain now, as always, the Mullers of Coot Street.